0: you up to speed. Here we are in John chapter 5. Jesus there at the pool of Bethesda within the the gates of the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where, as it says, there was a great multitude of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people that were all gathered there at the pool of Bethesda just hoping, hoping in a legend that maybe their situation could change. Now, I do want to say that there is a spiritual parallel to this, and it is kind of an easy one to draw from because even today, yes, we acknowledge that there are so many blind people who cannot see where they're headed, and they're just stumbling into all these disasters, and they don't even know it. There are lame people who just cannot walk the way that they should, They know how, but they just can't seem to make themselves do it. And instead, they just stumble and fumble and fall. And yet, even in the middle of the sickness and the blind and the lame, there are still people, even today, who hear the voice of Jesus in the midst of their impossibilities, saying to them, take up your mat and walk. It's a day to rise up. And I want to encourage you, please, do not give up hope. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he can change your life in this very instant. It's not like that he would just have to set you in a trajectory that maybe 20 years from now, my life can be different. He just has to say the word and you can be changed. And so praise God for that. Just trust in him. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man there at the pool of Bethesda, he did get himself into trouble. Um, he got himself into trouble with the religious leaders because, well, not because he healed the man. They were okay with healings. I mean, they're pretty fascinated by them. Not because he told the man to take up his bed and walk. That made sense. He got in trouble because he chose to do it on the wrong day. Jesus got into trouble because they're in the presence of human agony, we find that God doesn't keep the Sabbath. In the presence of human agony that our Lord responded to that need and they persecuted him for it. Last week, we saw how he didn't answer their accusations about why he healed on the Sabbath, why he told him to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. He didn't get into it by addressing, well, let me just explain to you what the Sabbath actually is. He went right past all of that. He went right to the like stressing his authority by speaking of his oneness with the Father. He says, my father works up until now, and I work. And aren't you glad that the father works on Sabbath? What if God took every Sabbath off? That means every Sunday, we'd be spending all this time cleaning up the mess. I mean, you know what it's like when you take vacation. You take a couple of days off of work, and when you come back, you have to work extra just to catch up. Could you imagine what it would be like? But praise God as it says in Psalm 121, verse three and four, he will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. There's no drowsiness with the Lord. There's no dozing off and things going um, outside of his tender and, uh, and careful attention. And so Jesus says, look, my Father works, and so I work. And in fact, in verse 19, he stresses the fact that they do everything together. It's not that, you know, the Father does work, and so I kind of do the same kind of work. No, it's that they're, they're working together in the works. The Father is working, the Son is working, and then in verse 20, he says the Father loves the Son. There is a perfect unity of love between the Father and Son. Now, I also want to clarify a little statement that I made last week because a question did come up. The the statement that I made last week was, listen, God doesn't have parts. And a God who has parts can fall apart. God does not have parts. But the question did come up, well, wait, okay. But then wait, then who was Jesus praying to? Who descended upon Jesus at his baptism? You know, like, so like, what's that all about? And so to clarify that, yes, three persons, but not three parts. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. They are not three distinct personalities, because it's not that we're describing a schizophrenic God. Where in some days he's one way and then all of a sudden he changes and he's another way. It's not three personalities, it's three persons. And then with that, it doesn't mean that these persons are independent of each other in the sense that one person could exist without the other one. They're not independent, they're distinct. They are not identical, they are distinct. You could say that we have, we worship one God who has three centers of self-consciousness with independent propositional knowledge. That's a lot of words. Independent propositional knowledge, yeah, like that means that the son knows, though he knows the father perfectly, he doesn't know what it's like to have, I am the father, be a true statement about himself. Because that would be absurdity. Right? Some people say, well, is all things possible with God? Well, then can God, can God lift? Uh, can he create an object so big he can't lift it? Does that mean that he's no longer omnipotent? Have you ever heard dilemmas like that? That's an absurd statement, right? Can God make a square circle? You know, those are absurd statements. Like whatever God makes, God can lift, right? Whatever the shape is that happens to be round, that's what it is. It doesn't lose its identity. But at the same time, the son will never be the father and will never have that statement, I am the father, be true about him. So there is three persons, but one God. Three distinct persons, one God. Jesus and the father are working together. And you see this, even in every epistle, you might have overlooked it, but like it says in Philippians 1 verse 2, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1:2 To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not grace and peace from God the Father and then also it's they're jointly at work in our blessing, in our building up, in our strengthening, in our salvation, in our resurrection, They are working together. The works of the Father are the works of the Son. And like Jesus said in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And then he's going to unpack that for us in verse 24 to 26. And when he says in verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, He's going to unpack that for us in verse 27 to 30. When Jesus says, the Father raises the dead and gives to the Son the same power, what he's saying there is that he has the power to give life to the dead. And in the words, the Father judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son, he's saying that he has the final say of human destiny. So he is the one who has the power to give life and he has the final say on where you spend eternity. He is the judge. He is the life giver. All judgment and hope is in his hands. And so with that in mind, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and, as, and has given him authority to exer- execute judgment, also, because he is the son of man, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of my own self do nothing as I hear I judge. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. When the Bible speaks of death, it uses the word death to describe a personal separation. A personal separation. And it's used in three different contexts, this idea of death. When Adam sinned in the garden... He experienced a death that day. That was the promise of the curse. And the day that you eat of it, in dying, you will surely die. And what died about Adam that day? He died spiritually that day. He was separated from God because of his sin. And that separation was a death that entered into the human race and spread upon all of us. So even though you were born very much alive, you and I were also born very much dead. Death. And that's where the gospel comes in. To be born again. Born of the Spirit. Made alive in that realm in which we are able to have unity and fellowship with God. When the Bible describes physical death. That's when the soul is separated from the body. So spiritual death is the spirit of man separated from the spirit of God. Physical death is the soul of man separated from the body of man. And yet the Bible also describes what is called the second death, which is that eternal separation of the sinner from God in hell. Now again, because of Adam's sin, people are spiritually dead. When Adam, you know, it, it's been like into like he was in the he was behind the driver's seat of the bus of humanity, and when he drove that bus off the cliff, we were all in the bus with him. We were all born in sin, but because of Adam's sin, people are spiritually dead, and yet. Jesus has the power to give life. He says there in verse 25, the hour is coming and is now, right now, you who sit in spiritual darkness, that that Jesus has the power to give you life, to change your existence, not just survival, but life and life more abundantly. You can receive this power, this life. But it's not just that. It's not just spiritual life. It's physical life too. We see that in verse 28 through 30, that those who are in the graves will hear his voice and live. What Jesus is saying here is that life, spiritual and physical life, belongs to him. Now, let me just say something. That cuts right across the philosophy and propaganda of our day. Because everywhere you look in the day that we're living in, everywhere you look, the media is trying to tell you that your life belongs to you. Let me just show you a couple of real basic memes. Look at this. It's your life. Live it your way. What about this one? It's your life. Don't let others tell you how to live it. Or this one. It's your life, and you can do what you want. Or one more with butterflies to make it a little more sweet. It's your life. Don't let anyone make you feel guilty for living it your way. But let me just tell you something. You are guilty for living it your way. That will be your condemnation. When I gave my life to Jesus, The message that he spoke to my heart was as simple as this. I love you. I made you. I know what's best for you. But because you're living your way, your way is leading you to hell. And my sinner's prayer was as simple as this. Lord, I want to live your way. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, here's the thing. We're fed all the time this lie that it's your life, that it's your life. But it's appointed to man once to die and after that, the judgment. So if it's your life, then why are you being held accountable for it? Why do you have to give a report for every deed done in the body, whether it's good or bad, that you are going to have to answer for that? You know, when you go to rent a car, <laughs> you got to take pictures of the dents because when you take it back, they'd be like, what's this dent right here? But if you put it there, guess what? You're responsible for it because it's not your car. And your the life that you are living, it's not your own. You didn't invent it. You were given it. And also, one of these days, you're going to have to give it back. Those two facts, they underscore all of life, and it's so easy for us to forget that. Appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Jesus, he has the power and authority to give physical life. He has the power and the authority to write the curse. There in the garden, when the curse came upon all mankind, Jesus can set it right. To write the curse of spiritual death because he died in our place and to write the curse of physical death because he conquered the grave. And we can have life now in him. When, remember, six days God created the heavens and the earth and he looked at it all and he said, it's very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. But then something happened. The fall. And it wasn't good. It's not good. But we're heading towards where Jesus will restore all things. All things. He has the power to cancel death. And he proved that through the resurrection from the dead. The power to give spiritual life as well. John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. This abundant life, not just breath in your nostrils, living a quality of life that comes from God. John 1.4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And that light is shining in the darkness. It tells us in John 3:16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Life, rescue, salvation. And again in John 3, verse 35 and 36, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That sounds a lot like what we're reading here in John 5. The father has committed all things into the hands of the son. And if you believe in him, that you're saved. Jesus gives life to whom he will. Jesus is the judge of all mankind. So he is the life giver and the rightful judge. If Jesus gives you life, if he gives you everlasting life, guess what? You are on your way to heaven. Okay, so that's pretty important, right? So how do I make sure that I receive from Jesus that everlasting life thing? Because I want to go to heaven. If he gives you eternal life, you will never die. But, again, you only have it if Jesus gives it to you. And if he doesn't give you life, then you remain on your way to hell. On your way to all that just eternity of frustration and torment, of having existence and ceasing to exist at the same time. Wow. If that's the case, that he is the rightful judge of all humanity, and yet he is also the life giver, if he is the just and the justifier, if this is the case, then he is the most important person in your life. He is the one that you need to listen to. If your very physical existence has come from him and your spiritual destiny is in his hands, um... I mean, we find this throughout all of scripture. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be it to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Like all of creation, that every knee is bowing and every tongue is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the great question is, is like he is the life giver and he is the judge. And so eternal life, who does he give it to? And how do they get it? Like what do they have to do to get it? Who does he give it to and what do they have to do to receive it? And the answer to this, It's in one of the greatest verses in this passage, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Wait, he's the judge. But if you hear his words and believe him who sent him, he's not going to judge you. No, he'll, he, the one who has the power of life, will give you everlasting life. He said, the hour is coming and now is. Remember when he said that to the woman at the well in John 4? Uh, we worship on this mountain. You guys say Jerusalem. He said, woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming and now is. She heard those words in verse 4. Nicodemus heard it in chapter 3 in verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Over and over again in the book of Revelation, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Will you hear him today? From that in verse 31 to 40. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the work, the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me. The Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus wasn't just out there saying, hi, everybody. Like, I'm the son of God. You should believe me. Like, honestly, no, you should really believe me. Like, I could be pretty convincing. He wasn't out there all the time. Like, you know, like, look at my smile. Of course, I'm the son of God. You know, if he was just out there bearing witness of himself, that'd be nothing. In fact, according to the, the, the um, Old Testament, it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. So, just testifying of yourself, there's plenty of people that are out there just blowing their own horn. No, here he says, as it says in the heading there, the fourfold witness. So, in verse 33 through 35, we see the first of these fourfold witnesses. Who is that witness? John the Baptist. John the Baptist had borne witness about Jesus to the Jews. They came all the way out to the Jordan from Jerusalem to meet with him, and they asked him straight out, Are you the Christ? Nope. Are you Elijah then? Nope. Are you that prophet? Nope. Then who are you? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the ways of the Lord. He's bearing witness to the light. Furthermore, he was the one who pointed to Jesus publicly and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he testified that Jesus was the Messiah. So John bore witness. Then there's the witness there in verse 36. He says, but I have a greater witness than John's for the very works which the father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me. Like, Nicodemus knew that when he said in John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We see the same thing in John chapter 7, when the man that was born blind... When Jesus healed him and he received his sight. Now, people have their sight and then lose their sight and then get their sight back, and that's a miracle. But this guy was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And they were like, this has never happened before. And they're like, well, he's a sinner because he's healing on the Sabbath. Like, uh, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But he's healing on the Sabbath, and you guys aren't doing that stuff. Like there's something going on when a guy can heal a dude that's been born blind, heals him. And like, that just doesn't happen. God is with him. And then there's the witness in verse 37 and 38. The witness of the father. How is the father a witness? Remember the father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that doesn't happen every day. You know what I mean? Like if I'm in here today and I'm like getting ready to speak and then all of a sudden you hear this like, and Sean will teach my word today. You'd be like, how cheesy that he's putting that through those speakers. You know, like, that's so corny. In fact, it's probably kind of blasphemous. But if you're out in the desert, there's no electricity anywhere. They haven't even invented speakers. They wouldn't come about for, you know, another, you know, yeah, a, a long time, couple, couple thousand years, no speakers yet. Uh, and all around you, there's, like, just reeds and desert and water and a booming voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're going to be like, wow, that's amazing. The father bore witness. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5, and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. So that's twice now the father has said, I am pleased with him. And then in John chapter 12, the third time the father speaks. John 12, 27 through 30. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. The Father is bearing witness. And then we have, so we have John the Baptist. We have the very works of Jesus. We have the Father's bearing witness. And then in verse 39 and 40, He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. And you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The witness of the scriptures. Man, it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. You know, in a little while, we're going to be remembering and celebrating the Passover. That that, that holy feast of the Jews that they would remember when God brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. And when he did it, it was so significant that he said to them, this will be a beginning of days for you. That this day will be like your new year because this is the beginning of your new life. This day. And they were gonna, they, they were supposed to, you know celebrate this passover with you know their shoes on their feet with their staff in their hand like they were getting ready to leave because God was about to do amazing things in their midst and every year that would be commemorated when God led them out of their slavery in Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm the through the the, the blood of the lamb the angel of death would pass over them And they would remember that. They'd have all the different elements of the feast. And each one was so significant about the events that happened there at that first Passover. And so Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And they're celebrating this feast of the Passover. And he's like, I know this is really important to all you guys, but you need to know something. All of this right here, it's me. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed. That when my body is broken and my blood is shed, the angel of death will pass you by. Where we talk about it in in, in the epistles, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Not a bone of his was broken, all according to the Passover. It pointed to him. But they didn't want to see that. So the Passover, the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, we talked about it in John chapter 3. Remember, they were complaining against the Lord and God sent snakes and they were biting the people and the people started dying. And then all of a sudden, a, a bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole and anybody that would look to that serpent, if they were bit, they would be healed and they would live. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It pointed to Jesus. We talk about it in, you know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where it says they all drank from that same spiritual drink, for that rock was Christ. When God, they're all thirsty in the desert. And God shows Moses, take your rod and smite the rock, and water will flow from that rock. And then after that, remember, they were thirsty again. And God says, just speak to the rock. And Moses is so mad that he hits the rock again. And for that, God kept Moses out of the promised land. Because the rock was Christ. It was speaking of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't have to die and be sacrificed the next time and sacrificed again and sacrificed again. It's not like every time as you, know, you come before the altar for communion, it's, He has to be He's crucified once for us. And after that, to have cleansing and, and restoration, you just speak to Him. That rock was Christ. In the next chapter, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus preaches about how he is the true bread from heaven. He is the manna. And now they're all mad because he healed a man on the Sabbath day, and yet they don't even realize that Christ is the Sabbath. That he is the true restorer and setter right of all things. Like by making up a word, setter writer. Where it even says, don't let any man judge you in terms of new moons or Sabbaths, which are all a shadow, but Christ is the substance. It all points to Jesus. The scriptures are Christocentric. Christ on every page. It all points to Jesus. And yet, as Paul says in Romans, what advantage does the Jew have over the Greek? Much in every way, chiefly that to unto them were committed the oracles of God. The advantage that the Jew had over the Gentile was that God gave to the Jews the treasure map that pointed to their treasure. And you know what they did with the treasure map? They're like, yay, we got the treasure map. They didn't even think to open it up and find the treasure that it pointed to. We find at the very birth of Christ, the Magi from Persia had taken the extremely long journey to be there with Jesus because of the prophecy of the star in the east. And they came to Jerusalem, which is six miles outside of Bethlehem. And they go to the religious leaders. Okay, like, where is he who's been born, the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And they're like, well, I mean... It says Bethlehem. Well, okay, we're going. All right, let us know when you find him. They don't even leave Jerusalem. They have the treasure map and they won't even take it six miles when the Magi from Persia have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. It all points to Jesus. Sadly, they weren't open to Christ. But they will be open to the Antichrist. That's why we see in verse 41, sorry, verse 41 down to verse 43. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, Him you will receive. And sadly, that is the truth. There's coming a day where a a powerful man will rise up. And he'll make it possible for them to rebuild the temple. The prophecies say when you see the, the, the man of lawlessness, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in the holy place, he says that he will he'll, he'll proclaim that is God and try to be worshipped as God. The Antichrist will come. And when that happens, as he begins to make the way for them to rebuild the temple, they'll begin to follow him. When Jesus comes in the name of his father, and they won't receive, but they'll receive the one who comes in his own name. Now, There from verse, you know, 41, actually from verse 39 all the way down to the end of the the chapter. He begins to give these reasons for them not believing in him. Let's just read it again, verse 39 down to the end. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If any man comes in his own name, if another man comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from, God, from only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? They had the reasons for their unbelief. The first one we see is their pride. They refuse to come to Jesus to have life because they think that they already have life. They have the scriptures. We have life because we have the scriptures. They thought because they're Abraham's children, they they were fine. Their pride would keep them from knowing the Lord. But look, if you want to be saved, a person must admit that they are a sinner, that they deserve God's judgment, and that they're unworthy to receive his grace. And yet, to come to Him by faith and receive. Their pride kept them from belief. And, you know, we see that they were unable to believe because they didn't have the love of God in their hearts. That they were unable to believe because they were rejecting Jesus and opening themselves up to a tremendous uh, deception. He said, if you just believed Moses, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. Moses spoke of Jesus from Genesis 3.15 or the prophecy there in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. From when Moses talked about lifting up the pole on the serpent in the wilderness but they wouldn't believe Moses. So, how will they believe in him? But here's the question that I want to leave you with Will you believe in him? Will you hear his voice? Will you come to him and receive life in his name? In spite of all the impossibilities, like he said to the man there in the pool of Bethesda, do you want to be made well? And when the man tried to give all of his impossibilities, well, I can't because of this and that. Like, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Will you believe Him? Will you hear His voice? For the hour is coming, and now is, right now, that the dead will hear His voice and live. Come to Him and receive life in His name. Let's pray.